The GR Project. We seek to highlight openers who are impacting education. To amplify diverse voices. To engage in complex, empathy-based conversations. To connect to national issues and opportunities. We're glad you're here. Hello there. Welcome to the GR Project. This is our first episode of the podcast. I'm Greg. My name is Randy. And we both work in and around public education here in Oakland. We're hoping that this podcast, over time, shines lights in, on the issues and uh, the people here in this city doing work with real kids and families. And we find this work fascinating and important, and we hope you do too. Yeah, so here in this very first episode, we had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Brian Stanley, the executive director of the Oakland Education Fund. Greg, you want to share a little bit of quick background on on the Ed Fund? Yeah, the Ed Fund is obviously here in Oakland. They have partnered with uh, Oakland Unified School District, individual school sites, charter-run schools, and funders and corporate funders uh, to raise money for public school kids, and they do that through a variety of ways. Brian on the podcast also talks a little bit about the leadership they've taken in organizing volunteers in Oakland Public Schools as well. Yeah, we had um, we had a, a really wide-ranging conversation with Brian that, that could have gone much longer than, in fact, it actually did. And, and among the the many fascinating insights. And Brian speaks about his views on corporations funding schools and why that doesn't bother him. Uh, he shares that while he finds that many people want education to be all about kids, it's it's not in his view. And he sheds light on why that's not the case, painting a very humanizing picture of Oakland residents who work in the district's central office. Uh, and then uh, lastly, uh, something that struck me was he he shares some some really uplifting success stories. Uh, highlighting the impact that the Ed Fund is, is having on kids in our schools. He also, near the end, gives us some great ideas of a couple of other future guests that we might be able to feature here on the podcast. So uh, a couple of quick things before we dive right in. Uh, one is there may be a bit of a problem just the last two minutes of the show. Uh, there was a little bit of feedback there. and we, So if you do hear that, we apologize. It's not unlistenable, but it's certainly not our, our best production there. Uh, and the rest of the podcast should be fine. Uh, and then the other thing is, we'll, we'll, Randy and I will hop back on afterwards and we'll share a little bit more information about how you can be in touch, find our website, social media, all that good stuff. Great. So I think without further ado, let's uh, cut to our interview with Dr. Brian Stanley. So hello, everybody. Welcome to the GR Project. Hi, Randy. Hi, Greg. Nice to have you here. It's great to be here today. Uh, we are recording here with Dr. Brian Stanley. Hi, Brian. Hello, Greg. <laughs> so um, at the GR Project, we are here to try and bring out the voices of Oaklanders doing work in the city and the town around education and kids and youth. And as this is our EP1, uh, we wanted to, to kind of bring in a heavy hitter right away. So thanks for making the time and joining us and, and sharing your story. Pleasure. Happy to do it. So... Um, why don't we start off with some, hopefully, some easy, some easy questions. Can you just tell us a little bit about the work you do uh, for folks who maybe don't know anything about you or your organization? So the Oakland Ed Fund, uh, what we do is we uh, help raise resources to support public schools in Oakland, California. 
Um, so that usually means we work with foundations and local businesses um, who want to bring in resources to help do programs and projects um, in partnership with schools. And then we also work with the broader community to bring in to bring them in as volunteers um, to support public schools as well. So it's a it's a fun job. We get to have all kinds of interesting adventures just about every day. And, and Brian, how long has the organization been around? Uh, the Ed Fund's been around 13, 13 years. And you've been with the with the Ed Fund for for four years. Four years, got it. Um, tell us a little bit about how you came to Oakland. It, the, the Ed Fund did not bring you to Oakland, correct? I uh, know. I my mom moved us here when I was in middle school because the rent on our um, top floor apartment on Dolores Street in San Francisco jumped to like 1200 bucks. My mom said, this is ridiculous. Who would ever pay 1200 bucks in rent to live here? This is nonsense. Uh, <laughs> so we moved to Oakland where rent was a whole lot cheaper then. Um, and I kept going to school in San Francisco because I didn't want to leave my friends. And then in high school, I was basically flunking out of high school because getting up at 5.30 in the morning was a really tough job for a teenager um, to get to school on time. And so I transferred to Oakland High School, the greatest high school in the history of Oakland, um, and uh, graduated from there. How does that go when you're wor- when you're working with Libby Schaff? Do you like we just don't even we don't even talk about it. Um, okay. It's just it's just it's less painful for Shout her. Out I Skyline think. Titans. Yeah, boo. Um, and so, um, so graduated from Oakland High, went to St. Mary's College um, for my undergrad, um, met my wife while I was working at St. Mary's as director of black student programs, uh, got married, finished my doctorate at Mills in Oakland. We moved to Oakland uh, because that's where all of our friends and family were basically living um, and have been here ever since. So can you tell us a little bit more about the doctorate and what you've been studying, what you studied, um, you know, what, what did you study as part of your inquiry into educational leadership? Um, oh God, that's a great question. No one ever asked me that anymore. Uh, <laughs> that's your, one of Randy's questions. <laughs> what was your research on, sir? Um, so my interest always is why, why people don't do what they're supposed to do. Um, <laughs> so, um, because I'm, I'm always fascinated with what does it, Sometimes, sometimes the right thing really is pretty clear and obvious, and yet people just don't do it. And I, I'm just curious as heck as to why they don't do that, um, and what are the barriers and roadblocks that they put up in front of themselves, and what are the barriers and roadblocks that systems put up to keep people from doing the right thing um, to make the world more just. So, ostensibly, um, the dissertation, the book report, I refuse to call a dissertation um, for any budding doctoral students never call a dissertation. It's always a book report. You've written book reports in crayon, so you can do so one can more. Do so you can do it. Don't 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 psych yourself out. So um, so mine's was on um, crisis management and really the disconnect at um, and this my my the research area was just using Catholic colleges and alcohol policy um, as a way to understand how big organizations manage crisis and the choices they made um, that actually, to resolve the crisis that were out of alignment with the values that they espoused. So Catholic colleges have this, Catholic, the Catholic Church is this really rich thinking around student development 
and the formation of conscience um, in helping students discern moral choices. But when students drank too much, it was, we're going to basically kick you out of school. Even though you knew that students were going to drink too much because college students have been drinking too much since, I don't know, Socrates. Um, and I interviewed a bunch of Catholic uh, college leaders who all said, yeah, we get it. It's ridiculous, but we are doing our legal duties first um, rather than actually attending to the values that we said. And that disconnect actually really agitated the heck out of people. Um, and so what I sort of concluded was ultimately when organizations are in crisis, you are much better off responding in ways that are in alignment with the values that you articulate because when you don't do that, that disconnect actually just makes the crisis much, much, much worse um, because then it moves from up from a really serious situation to now a reputational crisis. People don't trust you. People don't believe that you are who you say you are, and it just goes from bad to worse to worse to worse. So, so Brian, you're, you're, say, you're saying that you found that when organizations were confronted with um, how to manage the tension between what's legal mm -hmm. and what's moral. Yep. Is that the right framing? Yep, perfect. Yeah, that leaning on the, 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 the side of the morals, the values of the organization was the way to go. I, I assume not to, well, let me not assume. What happens when the morals may conflict or uh, break the law? Did, did you look at any situations like that? Yeah, normally what's interesting is that um, the frame so usually when people start talking about legal duties, they sort of figure out what the minimum is the law requires and try to meet that minimum standard. But usually within this, within this particular area of, um, of um, the obligation of the institution to care for the students, um, the, the law actually set a floor, right? So, and in most cases, if you sit back and think about the law saying, look, this is the type of relationship that we expect that you will have at a minimum to, to these folks. And you can feel free to exceed that, right? And the problem is most organizations never want to exceed that. They're like, I'm just going to do the bare minimum that's required and move on with my day. Um, and that usually is what starts to get you in trouble when times get tough. And honestly, it normally doesn't cost that much more money to do the right thing. Um, and you normally get so much more credit for doing the right thing. You're better off just doing the right thing to begin with. So that was what I studied. It was great fun. So I'm, I'm immediately wanting to jump to a whole other part of the conversation, but you know, there's got to be connections from this book report to your your day to day work, right? Supporting schools in Oakland and the Unified School District. So I'm just wondering, in terms of crisis management, what what comes to mind? Well, I think when large public organizations are dealing with. Um, I mean, I imagine OUSD in any given day probably has 100 incidents across the entire system that would be reasonably considered a crisis, whether it's a kid got attacked and got stabbed and seriously hurt, a teacher you know, fell and broke a leg or something crazy happened. Um, the, you can't, it's impossible to have this many bodies moving around every single day without, without something weird going on. Um, and I think, again, in, those, in the cases where that organization, whether it's comes from central office, whether it's at the school site, if they're responding to those things in alignment with their espoused values, then they're probably going to be okay, right? Um, if they're responding to those things with an emphasis on what is what is the what is the legal minimum that we must do, and let's focus on meeting that legal minimum, 
um, then then they're then odds are they're gonna they're gonna leave some damage in their wake. Do you do you ever find it kind of odd working in Oakland with this idea of like let's follow the law, compliance, all that sort of stuff when like you you know, we all know like slavery was legal and Jim Crow was legal. You know, mm-hmm. what 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 where does this obsession with I mean I'm not say I'm not advocating for breaking the law, but but why are people seem to be so risk averse or afraid of kind of going well beyond the law and and really you know sticking to values well i think it's you know i think i think that i think it's risk aversion i think people are afraid of um i think people are afraid of people are afraid of bad outcomes right so you may choose to do something you may choose to respond in a way that is um, that tries to go above and beyond it may not work out how do we help people be less afraid then um, I think, well, that's a man, you guys ask good questions. Um, so one of the ways that I'm aware of to do that is it's actually focusing on the process that you use to make the decision. Um, so there's, um, a while back I took a course down at Stanford in the decision sciences, uh, program. Um, and they had a pretty amazing process for thinking through, for, for saying, look, if this is a serious decision where there are real consequences, then you actually need to put the emphasis on um, having the right type of process to help you come to the to help you come to the best possible decision. And that decision may still may still may still have a bad outcome, right? Um, and that 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 might be okay. That may just be what it is. But if you are clear about the process that you use to decide whether or not you're going to do A, B, or C, and you choose B, and you go forward with B. Then there is actually some real solace, right, in knowing that you did your homework and that you had a, and that you went through that process. Um, so I do in that, in times in my own career when we've been in a crisis and the decision was was a high stakes decision, um, that was the process I went back to um, and sort of really emphasized that and walked people through that in a deliberate fashion. And it takes a little longer, right? Some extra hour of meeting time, um, but at the end, folks felt much better about going forward because they can say, you know, I feel like we're going to choose B. We feel great about B and we feel much more ready to execute B faithfully. Sometimes it worked out. A couple of times it actually didn't work out at all. Um, but even when it didn't work out, we could, we could then step back into that process afterwards and say, okay, let's figure out what if did we, did we know, did we, what did we miss any evidence or something like that. Um, and that actually could be really helpful for organizations and individuals. So one of the things that I'm I'm curious about, given what you're saying, and, and maybe you've just spoken to this, but I want to I want to make sure you have a chance to, to to go right at it or just underscore what you just said is, there's there's the the, the framing of the legal versus the moral, mm-hmm. but I I find that often that legal that legal minimum, even when um, educational stakeholders are interested in going beyond it, in some cases can be so emotionally um, draining and require so much energy simply to maintain compliance Mm -hmm. that the desire to then go do the more breakthrough, more um, important work 
it, it hasn't diminished, but the, the energy reserves to do it have. I'm curious, coming back to the educational leadership perspective, if you've got any specific stories or experiences where you've helped teams to, to push through that um, to good effect, or, or if not, to the types of what you'd recommend in those types of scenarios. Yeah, I mean, one of the areas where this comes up a lot is actually around special ed. So um, I think it's generally well understood that all things being equal, special ed services across, <laughs> certainly across the country, and most absolutely within, across California, are well below what anybody would consider um, good and acceptable for that particular population of young people. Um, and the Supreme Court just ruled that the standard they'd been using for decades to special ed, which is basically something akin to, well, you should try, we need to try real hard to give them an access to a quality education, but meh, right? And in your gut, you knew that, you know that's crap. Everybody knows that's crap, right? Um, but that was the bar at which the legal, f that was the floor for which where the law was set. And so people, you know, claim to go over it, but it's pretty clear folks didn't really go over it. The Supreme Court just ruled, I think it was 8 nothing. Like, no, people, come on. We're going to educate the kids. Educate the kids, right? And now there's all this panic in states about how we're going to pay for that and what does that mean. Um, and people like me who are advocates like, y'all should have been doing that a long time ago. That's what, that's what you know, the mostly African-American Latino families whose kids are in special ed, that's what they've been crying and demanding for y'all to do for years. And so I don't I don't have very much uh, I don't have very much empathy for the folks who are worried about how much it's going to cost because the truth is you all have been underfunding this on purpose mm -hmm. uh, for decades and you knew what you were doing was wrong and you were perfectly happy to keep doing it and I think now that now that the law has shifted I think that will put more pressure on them um, but to me I actually I, I think there's a legitimate question whether or not there will be the broader public will in order to do that so to answer your question. I think pushing past that, usually it depends upon, my, my, in my experience, usually pushing past to go to be exceeding the legal minimums is usually very much about who's doing the pushing and who's going to benefit. Um, and I, we're pretty clear that there are tons of kids in this city for who, who are getting a great high quality public education where they are getting, where people are pushing past for them. Um, and there are many, many, many more children for whom Actually, the okie doke is good enough in the minds of many, um, and that's that's that will continue to be a problem, I think, uh, for the foreseeable future because it's always been a problem in this country. So, can you do? Do you think the Ed Fund then like has a, a, plays a specific role in in moving people or systems or leaders or decisions or resources or money to to get around that? Okie doke mentality for kids and families furthest from opportunity. Like, is that kind of another way of? Is that like the mission? Is that what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, we we very much try in all the work that we do to think about how are we prioritizing getting resources to the educators and to the school communities that are that are serving um, our highest need kids first. So, um, a couple of examples of that we have this great work that we're doing with Intel and Salesforce around computer science and um, in math. And when we started working with Salesforce, I'm sorry, so when we started working with Intel, one of the things I said is you have to do this at McClyman's High School. Um, 
And both because McClyman's was pretty clear saying, yes, we'd love to have a partnership with Intel. We'd love to build out computer engineering pathways. We think this is a tremendous opportunity for this community. Uh, and since I live in West Oakland, I see um, what the lack of opportunity in West Oakland looks like um, or can look like. Um, and so, I, so we so we put one we put the Intel partnership at McClyman's High School and the other one at Oakland Tech um, because we knew that within Oakland Tech there was some um, uh, there were some internal stratification that has been occurring where you had some kids who were on the bright and the awesome path and some kids that weren't and we wanted to make a path for everyone at that school but particularly for the African American Latino kids who are in that school community and so um, when we did our work with Salesforce um, their interest was in middle school, middle school computer science, um, and in math. And what I said then was, we must have a strategy that's about doing something that intentionally interrupts the 90% uh, failure of African American, Latino kids in middle school math in this community. We've got to do better. That's unacceptable, um, given the fact that we know those skills are essential for giving them access to the jobs that are in this community now and that will be in this community in the future. So we're gonna we're gonna work with you all to focus this investment in those areas um, because we think that's actually key for making this this community work. So let's let's talk about some of these partnerships that the Ed Fund has kind of brokered with with companies and organizations and, mm -hmm. and with Oakland Unified. So how do you get started with something like Intel or Salesforce or any of the others where you're in relationship? How did it, how did it get going? What and uh, well, we'll just start with that. Um, but then I'm gonna wanna, I wanna know like what's been super awesome about it. What has been hard? Mm -hmm. What would you have done different? All that kind of stuff. So usually those start as a conversation that people want to be want people want to people want to support Oakland. People want to say yay Oakland. And so we think about any conversations we start with local businesses or larger corporations or uh, family foundations to say you want to say yay Oakland. So help us figure out these two to three areas um, that we know are important to you and us. And usually, if you're working with the Ed Fund, we're gonna try to keep them focused on core instruction, um, in part because one of our theories is that it is that there is no there is no private philanthropy that is going to outraise the public investment in public education. So OUSD's budget is six, seven hundred million dollars a year. I'm a good fundraiser. I'm not raising six or seven hundred million dollars <laughs> a year. Um, and so the way we think about it is the things that OUSD is already investing in. Well, you're already gonna put money in helping kids learn to read. You're already gonna put money in helping kids learn math. The question is, are there places where your investment isn't working and maybe you wanna try something do new or different or innovative, but you don't, but you can't sort of split off money and make the trade off to do that? Uh, are there places where you actually just need to do more of something that's super duper expensive? So we do a level, we do a program with level literacy, which is this really, really fairly well um, researched and fairly effective uh, reading intervention strategy, but it's just super expensive to buy all the materials and equipment. Um, and so we said to the district, look, if we help you with some of those, those materials and equipment costs, and you all continue to, to um, have the same reading specials that you were always going to have anyway, will that be helpful? And initially, we started that conversation. It quickly became, and will you focus this on the places where African-American kids are doing the worst in reading first? 
right? Because we want to. This got, is you asking OUSD. Yeah. So OU, OUSD said we want to do this. Can we do this together? I said yes. And can we do this in a way so it said we're focused? Well, we need we need a rational way to uh, to explain why we weren't doing all. 50-some-odd elementary schools where we were going to try to focus in the first 24. And how do you choose those 24? Well, disproportionality is a pretty good indicator of where folks need more help. So we said, let's go there first. Um, so that's how this normally works. Um, I think when um, – so, that, yeah, so it's connect, bring, connecting it with public resources in a really intentional way to really leverage those things together to serve more kids – uh, because that's also the only way to get things to scale. That's also the only way to make things sustainable because the private funding won't be there forever. People decide they want to do something else eventually. So we're trying to get as far as we can get to get something built that, that the system can then sustain because it's part of what they do already. It's not an extra. Yeah. So, so um, as someone who's, who's engaged in the Oakland community, it doesn't surprise me uh, at all that you're saying that there's, there's folks out there who want to say, yay, Oakland, who want to support Oakland. But can you, can you describe who, who are those people? Who, mm -hmm. who are the folks that are excited to support Oakland? Because I think unfairly, at a high level, the general perception is Oakland may not be so exciting in terms of education, and the reality is quite different. Mm -hmm. So I think on the business side, we see um, companies that are already in Oakland or moving into Oakland, um, and they are interested in supporting public schools because they understand their employees will are living in Oakland or will eventually live in Oakland, um, and they understand that school quality is actually an important variable for people determining whether where, where they want to live. Um, and if the public schools are, are, are of quality, then those employees will, will more more likely say, you know what, I'm willing to come here, settle down, make roots, and be and be a long-term and both contribute to this community and this company. Um, and that's a pretty time you know time-tested framework for most for most uh, corporate entities investing in their local public schools. Um, um, then there are sort of the family foundations. Um, who are interested, and they may be interested in, you know, they're interested in literacy, helping more kids read. They're interested in racial equity and justice. They support the African American Male Achievement Program. Um, they're interested in healthy community work, so they're supporting um, school site programs and community school managers and all these other resources, maybe family engagement. Um, but they have a theory of action that says if we want schools to be good, then these conditions need to be true in schools. Um, and then there are just like the, you know, this year we've cleared a couple thousand people to volunteer uh, in schools. And those are folks who are just community members, folks who are just excited to say maybe they're alumni of OUSD like me. Um, maybe they are, um, maybe they are just socially minded, socially conscious folks. Maybe they're folks who saw something on TV and, and were awakened to a need in a community that they hadn't thought about before and they want to help and maybe they don't have a billion dollars to give away, but, um, but they can give, they can give a couple hours a week to tutoring some kids at Martin Luther King Elementary School in West Oakland. And for them, that's actually a meaningful way to give back. So can we... You, you threw out a few numbers there. Can we put some numbers around the Ed Fund and the impact so far? So yeah. you just said you cleared thousands of volunteers this year? Yep. Since since when? Uh, this year we cleared over 2,000 volunteers. A uh, big chunk of those were parents because we, we took over, uh, at OUC's request, we took over uh, parent volunteer clearance. 
Um, we probably had about another five or 600 folks come through uh, for read-ins or corporate volunteers or community volunteers or something like that. Um, so yeah, we'll, 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 we comfortably over 2000 so this far is, this year. This is like the TB tests and the background checks. And that TB kind of? tests, background checks, trainings, um, some ongoing support. Um, we're doing some work now to build a better data system so schools can better manage some of this stuff as well. So they can just look you up and see can, if you've been cleared or not. Go ahead. Can you plug this? How do you get involved? Uh, sure. You can, <laughs> you can go to oaklandedfund.org uh, slash volunteer. Uh, we have tons of volunteer opportunities. Uh, this week's actually uh, Asian American Read-In Week. So we've got something like 60 schools doing read-in activities celebrating Asian and Asian Pacific Islander um, uh, culture um, all across the city. So tons of ways to get involved in there. Um, I think we're just about done with this year for ways, but we'll start in, the f in August with our back-to-school kickoff where we'll need folks to come out and help beautify school campuses and get and sort of make spaces welcoming for kids to return in August. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll include contact information um, and any links you want in the show notes, so, so cool. folks will definitely be able to get in touch. Greg, can I just do a quick um, yeah. follow So coming, coming back to um, the description of the types of folks who are excited about contributing to Oakland, I would love to hear you talk to some of the dynamics that I think are implicit in there that, that feel like they're at odds frequently, at least in the narrative that um, the general public might consume around corporations' involvement in education, gentrification mm -hmm. in, in uh, Oakland, and quality education. So yeah. tease that out. Yeah. So. You know, there are some folks who believe that corporations uh, shouldn't be involved in public schools. Um, uh, I, I don't share that belief um, mm -hmm. because I don't. Part of it is if we lived in a world where schools are fully funded, um, then I might be open to hearing that conversation. But we don't. Um, that for years the, um, the Bechtel Foundation basically funded large portions of the development of OUSD science curriculum um, and continue to support uh, both in Oakland and statewide development of the math curriculum because they believe that uh, if we're gonna prepare kids for, for the jobs of not just tomorrow, but the jobs of today, then they need to have a pretty thoughtful grounding in math and science. And honestly, who the heck disagrees with that? Um, that's ridiculous mm -hmm. to disagree with that. Um, and that work has been meaningful for generations of Oakland kids and teachers. Um, and to say that folks shouldn't do that because um, because of what the corporate entity of Bechtel does is like, I, look, I don't, I don't know what to tell you, right? Um, there was a study done a while ago by the Hewlett Foundation that talked about what it would cost to fully fund California public schools. And that in the, the cost at that time was basically double um, all of the K through 12 funding. Well, in California, K through 12 funding is anywhere from 46 to 50 some odd percent of the budget. So you mean 100% of the budget basically would go to supporting public schools? That means everything else doesn't. Get, that's not going to happen, right? So, um, so I think we are in this. We are in this place by design in California and in a, really across the country, mm -hmm. where school districts need partnerships from folks outside to help do the things that they know that kids need. Otherwise, the only thing we'll be left with is that sad legal minimum that clearly is inefficient, ineffective, doesn't do nearly enough, and certainly doesn't help the kids that are struggling the most. Um, I think on gentrification, you know, it's interesting. I was having this conversation with someone a while back and I just said, 
you know, on one hand, all the energy around gentrification, you know, that's not a na- it's a national phenomenon, but it's a national phenomenon in a in a handful of places in the country. Right. It's not there are whole major metropolitan areas where this is not an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of what's happened in California is that our is that the a series of consequences from that totally ridiculous prop thirteen, which please someone repeal that nonsense. Um, Tell us how you really feel. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, has artificially constrained the housing stock in this region and in this across the state, really, that has led to both prices that are absolutely ridiculous, um, and and there is, is also true that the jobs in this community are unable to keep up with the increasing prices of what it costs to live here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, it was just in Indianapolis, and let me tell you, I, it's easy to forget. <laughs> how expensive just everything is in Oakland, California, until you leave Oakland, California and go someplace else. You're like, oh, I paid how much for that dinner? That's ridiculous. What is it? I, really? Um, so it's, but it it's, was artisanal. But right, right, right. It was artisanal cheese. Uh, so I, so I just, I think the um, the challenges for Oakland around housing, around as communities change, um, around who lives in communities changes. You know, those are those are not those are not going away. Uh, anytime soon. I think the question is, how do you meaningfully deal with them? Where are the places where you can put protections in for folks Mm -hmm. who are vulnerable? Um, Where are the places where um, you can think about creative use of space, creative use of land, creative use of future housing to help alleviate some of that pressure? But you're never going to alleviate all of it Mm because it's, again, you you are in California it is, you know, the weather is beautiful just about year round, <laughs> um, and so I do think all that really b- bubbles into an interesting challenge for Oakland. Um, I think as that affects schools, I think what will be interesting to see is where those people who move into this community choose to send their kids. Uh, in San Francisco, I believe San Francisco still has the highest um, percentage of um, school-aged children not in public schools. Um, so there's a very robust private school sector in San Francisco. Um, it's parochial schools. It's independent schools. High, so highest, like, what do you mean, in the state? And I think highest in the country. In yeah, the country. yeah. Um, so it's some it's some really high percentage of their school age kids are not in public schools. And what's the, do you have the Oakland numbers? I don't. Okay. I don't. Well, let's see. There are seventeen thousand. There's seventeen thousand school age kids in Oakland that are not in Oakland public schools. Okay. Um, so that would mean there's 67-ish thousand school-aged children or so. Um, so, it, so it would seem like um, if those folks choose to invest in, their pub, in the public school system, then that would go a long way. Um, if they choose to pull their kids out and send them to private schools or parochial schools, then I think what you'll have is that the, the school system will continue will be a school system of essentially the left behind. And I don't and I think that's always the worst case scenario for any public school system. That is that is um, the school system becomes only filled with your with traditionally what what we think of as the hardest to serve kids. So hot so special ed kids that have hard disabilities to deal with. Um, um, your sort of your lowest um, your highest, your kids that come from your highest stressed communities and households. Um, in that scenario, then the cost of educating those kids is really high, and the resources you get per kid it will be will be will continue to be squeezed really hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, 
so I mean that's a big topic in Oakland right now, right? Mm-hmm. How many public, how many school age kids we have? How many are in district run schools, charter run schools, um, independent parochial schools? Right. Um, so what you, what are you gonna do about it? How you gonna fix it? Ah, that's that's good, <laughs> good of you. Uh, thank you for that question, Gregory. Um, or or tell us about. Can you help us remember some of the things that maybe we think we've already been doing to raise quality? And what about those things over the last 5, 10, 15 years have gone well and have yeah. been successes yeah. and what haven't? And then we can kind of look ahead. Um, sure. So I think most people remember in Oakland, um, I mean, there have been various curricular reforms. So we were open court for a while, then they took away open court. I think um, part of the lesson of that is they did open court in OUSD, which is a, which for people who don't know is a pretty scripted um, curriculum where teachers sort of were told on day one do this, day two do that, day they, they, they three do this, and so forth. My wife taught open court, right? Um, and there are people who love open court, right? Um, I think one of the one of the one of the the reason why I think OUSD did open court is because they had so many new teachers who didn't who were just f- literally fresh out of out of degree programs or on emergency credentials. And when you have people who essentially are brand new to something, the structure is better, right? Like if you ever if you ever start if you ever learn how to play a musical instrument, you are very structured for quite some time until you begin to build the muscle memory and the knowledge necessary to then learn more advanced techniques, right? But it takes a minute to get there, um, and so I think that was the choice that was made at the time, and which makes sense, except if you don't if you never transition people off of that, right? If you never then begin to take away the scaffolding and sort of see what they actually know, what they don't know, then they begin to feel constrained and trapped, and I suspect that's how it would happen in Oakland. Um, and so then they went away from open court and said, let a thousand flowers bloom. And I think now they're trying to figure out letting a thousand flowers bloom when we have this much teacher turnover is not a great idea. And so now they're trying to figure out how to go back. So that's on the curriculum side. And that's to be expected, right? That, that, that happens all the time. Um, Oakland tried small schools, which were sort of small by design schools, which is to say you take a large school of a thousand kids and you break it up into four schools of 250 kids. Can you then, then so that way those students begin to have different relationships with, with each other, with their teachers. Um, and that's cool, except it's really expensive because you just, you just simply, you do not have enough money to afford to run uh, four separate, you know, fully autonomous schools on the same campus. It wasn't the prom- part of the promise of that that like kids will have better relationships with teachers, teachers will have better relationships with, relationships with kids, uh, you know, chronic absenteeism will go down, attendance will go up, revenue then would go up and that would help. Yes, that's it's of. always interesting, but yes, that was what their hope was, but that's not what actually happened. So are uh, so are there examples of small by design schools in Oakland that are sustaining themselves and Oh, sure. Yeah, Met West is sustaining itself. Met West is doing great. In a lot of ways, um, uh, I believe Ascend, which is now part of the Education for Change uh, uh, network of schools, but that school seemed to be doing pretty good. Um, I believe uh, Urban Promise Academy was a small by design school. But what's interesting, Urban Promise Academy, um, one of the things they realized is they had a bunch of grant money, a bunch of federal grant money. As that money began to roll off, they had a choice to make, which was we've invested these dollars in a bunch of amazing things that are helping our kids learn. We have a choice. We can let those things go because we no longer have money for them or we need to increase our size in order to pay for them. Um, And so I think they chose to increase their size a bit and they're able to keep a lot of those resources and they're doing pretty well. 
right? Yeah, and I know that they just recently had the opportunity to, to decide to kind of grow again yeah. in the last year or two around serving the burgeoning newcomer population in yep. the school, yep. um, which has financial implications for the school to keep going and growing, but also, you know, just responding to the, the, the neighborhood. The community, yeah. Um, so, so, you know, that said, lots of the schools didn't make it. Um, lots of those schools just flat out it was not economically sustainable. And I think one of the challenges in Oakland education is it's difficult to tease out and separate out um, the sort of the value of doing something that is quote-unquote good for kids and doing something that is economically sustainable and responsible for the system. Um, and sometimes those things are in alignment. When they're in alignment, you like you should cheer and be excited because your choice is easy. Uh, but often they're not. Often you're trying to figure out how do we do this thing that's good for kids? How can we afford to do this thing that's good for kids? And really, I tend to think it comes back to trade-offs, right? That you have to, that you might need to need, need to do, need to, in order to do one thing means not doing something else. Um, and there's n insufficient conversation about trade-offs and thinking through trade-offs and deciding, okay, well, we're, we're opting for this, for option A, which means option B, C, and D are off the table. And how do we then transition those off in a timely fashion so we can still do option A? Brian, what's your, what's your view, um, given your perch in the Oakland education community, on how um, homogenous or not the the community's view on what's good for kids is uh well i think this is this is one of those times where um it depends upon who's talking it depends upon whose children you're talking about mm -hmm. um you know it, it's one of the things i've been thinking a lot about recently is i one of the things we helped do when i first got here um was to help um support OUSD in creating this really amazing outward-facing data system at OUSDdata.org, where you can go and see amazing dashboards, real-time data. You can go in there right now and find out how many kids are chronically absent um, at any school in, the o in Oakland. You can see that information broken up by race and ethnicity and gender, uh, special ed status, income level. I mean, OUSD has some of the most amazing data systems anywhere in the country, period. Hmm. Um, and that's a testament to the incredible researchers and the leadership of folks like David Montes Dioca and Gene Wing, people who are just warriors for justice in this community. Um, whether or not anyone ever knows their, whether anyone ever knows it's their work that's doing it. Right. Um, and yet, what always strikes me is the is that that data is always insufficient to compel public action. Um, so I can tell you right now that 75% of African-American eighth graders in Oakland have an academic profile, um, which really is a combination of test scores, attendance, discipline, um, and grades um, that suggests they're going to struggle mightily in high school. And those kids are going to high school in two and a half, three months here. Um, and there's never, it never feels like there's, there's compelling public action on that. It is always that those who have the loudest voice um, that talk about their kids um, often make arguments without using the really good evidence that is helpfully available to them. And say, actually, can we talk about this for these kids? Um, and I'm I'm always intrigued by why. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, we're pretty clear, I'm pretty clear at least, that public schools have a long way to go and have never really uh, done a terrific job of serving black and brown kids in Oakland. Um, and yet we never talk thoughtfully about that with the public. Inside of OUSD, that's a, that's a, a ton of conversation, ton of work, right? But with the broader community, there's just always a disconnect there. And I don't know, I don't know what that is. I don't know how to fix it. Um, but I'm also clear that until you get broad, real public will for better public education outcomes, particularly for um, your highest need kids, you're going to continue to get some pretty mediocre results for those kids uh, because that's because that's the default setting of the system. Just super, super minor question, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious if there's anything we can do to help here. It, someone is watching that data site and tracking traffic. Do you, do you happen to know what kind of traffic that site is, is seeing today? Uh, it's probably seeing a lot of traffic because it's, all, it's the main portal for the whole system. Mm -hmm. So everyone ends up going there. So yeah. like it gets tons of traffic. Um, but like, I don't hear people at city council talking about it. I don't mm -hmm. hear people at school board talking about it. I don't hear the quote unquote education advocates talking about it. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't, it's not a topic of conversation at PTA meetings in the Hills. It's not a topic of conversation really anywhere. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know why, right? And part of it is I think as good liberals, I presume to know your politics, gentlemen, um, uh, that we believe that if I come to you and we make a good evidence rational argument that you will see rationally like you know what you're right Brian this is a problem we should fix it mm -hmm. but that's not it I, yeah. I think there's more there's much more in there where the rat where there's some emotional piece in there yes. um, there's some fear in there there's some what am I gonna have to give up uh, to give you what you want in there mm -hmm. um, that it keeps people from doing that stuff so can you can you skip to the end what what would be the the crazy radical idea about how we could dramatically serve kids furthest from opportunity now how could we do it and what about that scenario is so scary yeah um i i you know i've been thinking about that question since you told me you're going to ask me this question a while ago uh, <laughs> and i don't yeah. think so you better have a great I, actually i i sort of don't really have a great answer um i think the what seems true to me is... I mean, it's not make teachers work 20 hours a day. No, no. I mean, honestly, um, what, seems, what seems true to me is, is that the things we know that work in public education to educate kids um, are things that, that are expensive. And I think so long as OUSD is spread so thin, it's hard to make those things work economically. Um, there is no scenario where you're going to be able to do the things you need to do on a budget of $600 million across 84, 86 school sites. You have to have some pretty tough conversations to figure out what are better options for that. So you either have to pretty radically increase your enrollment across the system, or you have to make some pretty tough choices about the number of schools you got. And why is, why is making choices around the number of schools that we have, why is that a tough choice? Why isn't the status quo, the current situation, the tough choice? Um, because people like to believe that schools, that these conversations about public schools should be all about the kids. And that's not actually what it is. Um, it's very much about the fact that public systems are um, 
they are in the business of allocating scarce resources. And when you are in the business of allocating scarce resources, it means there are winners, there are perceived winners and perceived losers. And in the past, when Oakland has talked about closing schools, we have disproportionately closed schools in black and brown neighborhoods. Um, and that runs smack into the racial politics of this community, which causes problems. Um, you know, if you were talking about closing a bunch of Hill schools, I, I mean, you still have a political challenge, but you'd have a different political challenge, right? That's not normally what happens, right? Normally you're talking about closing swaths of schools in East and Central and West Oakland, um, and that has real consequences. I think the biggest consequences, and the part where I say it's not, really, it's not always about the kids, is Oakland is a, OUC is a fourth largest employer. People can get all wistful about schools shouldn't be a point. Yeah, that's interesting. But the truth is you're the fourth largest employer. You know, and you're a major employer of African-Americans, Latino folks. And when you then talk about displacing those people, you're going to displace Ms. Jackson, who's been a school secretary for 20 years? For 20 years? And she's 54 years old? What's she going to do? What are you going to do with my, you know, what you going to do with my grandma or my auntie? And, and, her, and her nieces and nephews and grandchildren are going to your schools. And so you create, so that then creates this weird condition where, where you're going to have to lay off folks who are probably parents or relatives of students who go to your schools, inject a little economic instability into those very communities that you were trying to help that will cause some of those folks to leave, right? That's the hard part. It's got, again, it has nothing to do with the kids. Nothing to do with the kids. So I definitely don't pretend to have the answers either, but I'm, what's coming to mind is how, how could the system, leadership, the public, how could we create a process, going back to what you were talking about earlier around decision making, mm -hmm. that, that puts the Miss Jacksons and her students and her families and her nieces and nephews and all those sorts of things, puts them authentically in the center of the conversation about where we go from here. What would it take? Like, what, what, yeah. what would the process be? Would we be like, here's OUSDdata.org, here's translation and childcare, right. and here's, here's um, transportation to come to the meetings, and like, what are all the things it would take to authentically do parent engagement? Has OUSD ever done anything like that? And I, can I we do it? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not confident, um, you know, when you're talking about potentially displacing that many people in sort of large-scale school consolidations, I'm not sure there's a process that's easy. I don't, nobody to my knowledge has ever done it, right, across the country. There is no, everyone tries this awesome process that they think they've got, but the truth is you're talking about people's jobs. You're talking about the jobs of communities. I mean, for African-Americans of a certain generation, you were told to go get a government job. Why? Because they couldn't discriminate against you. Because you can get promoted. Because you can have a viable career and they could not lock you out because you were black. That's a, promise that was made long before any of us were here and we can argue again that schools shouldn't be about employment and that those are that that's what yes all that may very well be true and yet we are where we are so i don't know i don't know how you have that conversation um and engage community in that um or is it just simply about embracing you know what this is going to be what it's going to be um, and maybe the better emphasis is on how do you mitigate, how do you reduce the harm that you do um, that, that can be done to community as much as you can. Some of that you do on the front end, some of that you do on the, in the, sort of while you're in the process of making some decisions, some of that you do on the back end. Um, 
I think about you know when sometimes sometimes when be interesting. I wonder if maybe if you look at when sort of a corporation or business closes a large factory in a community, are there examples where people do that well, and what are those denominators that they do right? Um, I don't I don't know. So then my short my, my my long answer to your question is I have no idea how to do it, that well. Well, I mean, what comes to mind is that the same people were, you know, we're talking about hypothetically here, and you're saying you know these adults in the system, employees also have their children in the same public schools that are under enrolled and you know not receiving all the resources they would otherwise receive if we had had fewer more full schools right so i i don't want to take anything away from any of the folks we might be talking about i mean i can only imagine i want to start from the assumption that they can both understand fully their own personal economic consequences of tra- of the transitions and the changes that we could be talking about, but they could also at the same time want to be advocating for the same changes because it what it could mean for yeah. their own child. I mean, these are complex. Yeah. Things. So and so your original question was why is this hard? I think you just said this is precisely why it's hard. That people are people people can see quite clearly. I think both sides, right? They can see this school is, does not have what it needs in order to educate the children that show up here every day. And people are working their butts off. Teachers, principal, everybody is working as hard as they can, but we just don't have all the pieces that we need to get this done right. And under, and they're savvy enough to understand, and part of that is because we have a ton of schools in this community, char, both charter and district, uh, and they can also understand that if we start closing schools, there's a reasonably good chance my school might be closed, which might mean I might literally be out of a job. And those those things are all in some varying degree of conflict, and I think that's why this has been really hard for folks. I, I wonder. I wonder if this also comes back a little bit to um, where we started, and that the 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 ability to uh, be in compliance with the law mm-hmm. um, while trying to honor one's morals mm-hmm. are. Two dynamics that, on a time scale, are can be at least in conflict. So one needs to move at the speed of light because bureaucracy requires compliance mm-hmm. to some degree. The other for, for, uh, requires potentially glacial time scale. And mm-hmm. so I'm wondering if your experience is part of the problem is these processes around making these hard choices are trying to, they are are existing within a context that is not set up to really create trust, even if one were to disagree with someone's eventual hard choice or a body's eventual hard choice, to me, it feels like the, these processes aren't very, they're just not very human, mm-hmm. and, and, the, and all actors aren't given the benefit of being able to have more time to be more empathetic mm-hmm. and to be more data-driven mm-hmm. and have real difficult conversations uh, on a timeline that is respectful mm-hmm. of the depth of the complexity that you're right. speaking to. Does, I'm just curious if that feels... Yeah, I mean, I think there's like, a lot there. I think... Um, yeah, I think when you these issues, you know, these issues are not about. Again, the, these issues build on things that have been here for decades, right? You're talking about a city where there is an incredible amount of segregation, incredible history of racism, um, uh, a school system that has that has 
that has that really struggled um, to has and continues I think to struggle to find itself um, in terms of how are we ensuring or how does how does OUSD um, provide a great public education for every kid that shows up at the door? Um, I again, this is all this has all been here forever, and so I think you're right that that requires a level of conversation that has got to go deep. Um, there's no other way to do it well, um, and when these things get rushed or they feel disjointed or they feel sort of rammed down people's throats, then you get what happens at school board meetings, you get um, you get what happens in the broader community, um, you get a level of resistance. Some of it comes from disagreement, some of it comes from confusion, some of it comes from you bastards are doing this to us again, right? Um, and that is not, I think, what you want. And and if, again, if I knew how to solve this, I would, I would, you know, I would, I would just do it. <laughs> Run for school board. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. So, so one, so just one other quick, quick follow up on that. Um, you know, it se it, it seems like Oakland is one of the cities in the nation where something like, and I, 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 I kind of want to frame this even bigger than I'm about to, but the frame that I'm about to put forward feels sufficiently large. Um, where Oakland could set an example or at least engage in an experiment around educational truth and reconciliation, mm -hmm. right? where there's a um, very intentional communal gathering to say, we are going to address the past now. Mm -hmm. in, and I am way out of my depth here, so mm -hmm. no, no insight into what that would need to look like. But that creating that experience for all of us in this community as a way to maybe try to flip the bit and be able to move forward in a direction that I, I don't know. I'm one, I'd want to hear your take. Yeah, Maybe we can't get to without something like that kind of experience. Yeah, I mean, it's this interesting. This is an interesting thing. I was at an Ed Reform event in Indianapolis um, this past week, and what I was struck by was the inability of those people who led that dialogue and the people that participate in that dialogue to talk authentically about the story of race in Indianapolis uh, and how that, you know, the, the comment was made, well, you used to have 100,000 students in your schools and then that number dropped by half, ignoring the fact that it dropped by half right after school deterioration because the white folks left Indianapolis to go live in the suburbs uh, because they didn't want their kids learning next to black and brown kids, right? Mm -hmm. um, which, I, that was a 30-second answer for me, but they never talked about it. And so... Um, and it got me thinking, and then like, what would that what would that story be in this community mm -hmm. for Oakland? Right? What would that story be? Um, how what what would it mean to sort of really reckon with that history? And I think the the challenge I always have with that is, on one hand, I think the reckoning is important, and I think the truth telling is important. Um, but I, what I'm often then struck by is this: is the okay? So what do we do with this? Um, is it sufficient to apologize for the fact that your schools are hypersegregated by design? Um, that it wasn't until um, that the original attendance boundary for Skyline was actually drawn around the Oakland Hills and not um, and not um, north to south, like it had been for every other Oakland school. Um, and what does that mean for Skyline? Um, that, by the way, also explains, I suspect, why in in Oakland public schools. You can be from whatever school, you can graduate from whatever high school you want to, but everyone would be unified in the fact that we all hate a skyline. 
right? It <laughs> took me forever to understand that, and that was actually part of that history, right? Mm -hmm. Or the fact that students at Castle Mount rioted um, in the in the in the sixties um, and seventies over the over the segregation of Skyline High School, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but what do we do with that history, right? If we rec if we if we try to reconcile that. Is it just to reconcile it? Which I'm cool with. Don't get me wrong. I'm mm -hmm. just, I, I can appreciate that um, as an African American in this country, um, and living in the age of Trump. Um, yeah. And what does that mean for now? Right? What does that mean for the students that go to schools like Brookfield or um, or uh, schools like Lafayette, where we know we've just got to do better, mm -hmm. flat out, no questions asked about mm -hmm. what it is. We've got to do better. Um, and then how do we do that? Um, and does that reconciliation get us to the point where um, there is sufficient public will, just in Oakland, um, to take the right types of actions, whatever those actions are, recognizing those actions will, will lead to meaningful trade-offs? Right. Um, and that, I think, is the question. I don't have an answer. Let's, uh, I'm going to take this as a chance to kind of switch to a slightly different topic. Okay. But we might come back to this one. Cool. Actually, it's one of my favorite ones to talk about. Um, I want to I want to talk a little bit about how the Ed Fund relates to OUSD and specifically your your position uh, on the executive cabinet. Mm -hmm. So you're on the executive cabinet. I am on the executive so, cabinet. Yes. So what is what is an executive cabinet, and kind of who's in there? So in OUSD, um, there really are sort of three different leadership structures. There's sort of the Senior leadership team, which is a superintendent, sort of the top deputy superintendents, general counsel, those folks. There's executive cabinet, which is a group of maybe about 30 or 40 folks or so um, that really comprises leaders from across the system. Um, and then there is the, I think they now call it the expanded executive cabinet or something like that. But it, or I forgot what it's called. But it, that's like basically all department heads above a certain level in the system. And so I'm in that middle group. Um, I think I have found that to be consistently one of the more humbling places uh, that I get to sit in OUSD. And ironically, I almost never learn anything that I don't know already <laughs> in terms of what the system is doing. But it's interesting to see how that group of folks is constantly trying to, trying to unpack what's happening. Um, and they are constantly trying to think through what's coming up next. Um, and they're really grounded in the data. So the data system that um, we help support OUSD building, we use that data all the time to help us understand, to say this school has done amazing work on attendance and their number and they have far fewer chronic absences, but the school next door is not. What's the plan to get these school leaders together to talk? And maybe there's something different about the school that's, that's really still struggling, but maybe actually the principal may not know what the other school's doing. Right, so um, it's just, it's an interesting place to sort of sit with people who are actually leaders in education and just hear them dialogue about what's happening and unpacking it. And I think with how that's helpful for me with my job is that when I go and talk to a funder and they say something wacky, because sometimes funders say wacky things to me, um, I'm able actually to push back with some real grounded truth for them of actually these three things are what the school is really struggling with. It'd be great if you could help us figure out how to support OUSD in doing one of those. So can you give us an example of, you know, some sort of powerful contribution the cabinet has done recently to either 
advise the board or push down to school sites like you know some something impactful that that you carry with you yeah i mean recently our conversations have all been budget 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 um which is a painful conversation to see um so i think in the recent past um, there's been a ton of work around attendance in oakland um be particularly because attendance um particularly in our primary grades has such a big impact on how well students are gonna do. Um, so it's not just the revenue portion, though that does clearly matter. It's also like if a kid is missing 18, 20, 25, 30 days of school, they're, they're not gonna get what they need to get. That's just a physical impossibility. So um, there's been a lot of um, really fascinating conversations around student, around data, around attendance, trying to understand where the concentrations are of chronic absence, trying to understand what's happening in the communities around that. And they're really trying to push more support down to schools, whether it's good ideas that are coming and bringing people together to talk about those ideas. Uh, sometimes it might be a grant funding I can cobble together and say, oh, if you want to do this, I might have a funder that could be totally interested in supporting that kind of thing. Um, I think eventually, as we do some of these um, as we sort of do some of this group volunteering stuff, one of the areas I suspect will come up over the next year or so, we'll be getting group volunteers who are, who are volunteering at schools, particularly focused around attendance, whether it is we are gonna celebrate the heck every month out of kids who've, got, who've been to school on time, right? Um, some, I know other communities, we haven't this in Oakland, but other communities, you know, they will, they will, um, they might do a text message to the parents, be like, hey, great job, your kid got in school today, this is really terrific, yay, or something like that. Um, Oakland's not quite there yet for many reasons. But the idea, again, is to say, are the community sees, sees your child in school every day, and we are excited to see your child in school every day. Um, um, so that's that's how some of that's happened. Got it, so, so that's a that's a, a great perspective on the notion of the community driven by the 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 executive cabinet seeing the children. What what if we turn it around? Mm -hmm. If what would what might be most surprising or or most interesting if a community member were able to be a fly on the wall during during an executive <laughs> cabinet meeting? Uh, besides how boring the meetings are now. Um, <laughs> um, I think what they would be surprised by is. The you know that it can be really easy in bureaucracies. No USD is if it is nothing, it is a bureaucracy. Um, it can be really easy for folks to dehumanize the folks that work in central office. Yeah. Um, it could be really easy to just forget that these are people who are who are educators. They have many of them have been in the system for decades. Um, they were principals. They were classroom teachers. Many of them have their kids in Oakland schools. Uh, many of them deal again with stuff I could not, would not be able to imagine how to figure out that. Um, um, and they, they both really take, take seriously their job in trying and figuring out how do we get these schools to work for the kids that are that are from our highest stress communities. The degree to which we spend time talking every day, every month, every, excuse me, every week at Executive Academy about what is happening with these kids. Help us understand how we better serve these kids. What do those school leaders need to better serve these kids? Um, as a priority, it, it, it's, it, it's, pretty, it's, it's both inspiring and it's humbling because it, it ends up being the same conversation because what I know is true is like you all don't have enough. Um, and I can't, I, I can't raise, I can never raise you enough money mm -hmm. to get every last one of those kids to where they need to be, 
that is, and sometimes where they need to be is beyond where they think they can be. Um, and so that I think is a is is both humbling, but also inspiring. So when to see them come back every week and say, "All right, here's here's what we're going to do this week for these three kids," and when it works, it is a terrific day. Um, so I think that's probably the most interesting thing. Does the does the cabinet host kind of engagements with schools, school leaders, parents? Uh, yeah, actually, they just had a bunch of principals in yesterday to talk about some of the stuff around the school facilities process, um, which is interesting. Um, so no, I mean really no. I mean it. I don't think it doesn't make sense to think of executive cabinet as like it is an entity in and of itself. It's really just a place where leaders sort of district leaders get together to talk about what's happening in the district and how and where are the places where folks need help and support and it doesn't it wouldn't make any sense to do that can you i'm curious about some of the mechanisms of it so is it is it facilitated by the superintendent or uh yeah it's normally facilitated by a superintendent or a member of uh, her team um and um Normally, normally the agenda comes out, and it's again recently it's been all budget, all budget all the time, um, and trying to you know even the even the conversation of budget trying to the conversation is trying to honor the request from both the community and the board that the cuts be concentrated in central office and watching folks who understand that all right this might mean I might have to lay off a budget analyst or two um, or I may have to lay off this staff person. Um, who's doing essential work, and I'm going to have to take that work on. Um, and, again, it's easy in bureaucracy for people to say, well, of course you should, because that's you people don't do anything down there. But I, I, know, I see what these people all the time. That's not, <laughs> it's absolutely not true. These are not folks who are just twiddling their thumbs down there, um, waiting, look, just looking for something to get into. So, um, um, I mean, in terms of humanizing people and, yeah. and, and having empathy for decision makers at all levels. I mean, have you seen some of these same folks, you know, cut themselves, so to speak, you know, take on different roles for themselves to, to Yeah, I mean, to I, suspe I suspect that'll happen. The final budget has got to all be, be squared up um, in the next couple of weeks here. But I suspect next year some of these folks will be doing basically two jobs or two and a half jobs, um, which will come at a cost, both to them personally and professionally, but also to the work, right? Um, there's a reason why you, you needed two budget analysts. It wasn't just because you didn't want to do the work. It's because you actually have two budget analysts worth of work. And if you only have zero budget analysts and now you have to figure that out, well, then what's the what, again, trade-off, right? Then what's going to come off your plate? Um, but none of these are people for whom things come ever come off their plate. Are there... Is there a particular is there a particular narrative about Oakland education that the cabinet wishes it could most revise in the minds or and eyes of, of the community? Um, hmm, particular narrative in Oakland education senior district leaders want to revise. Um, I'm sure there are many. Um, I, I suspect one of the big ones. Um, well. I think OUSD central office is definitely due for a restructuring. Mm -hmm. um, I think there is a fairly consistent understanding that um, they that there needs to be some material shift in how the structures are down there in order to both improve efficiency, but also it's not the fact that there's just less money 
Um, and there are things that they do down there that will probably eventually be pushed out to schools to do. So then related to that is then how then do you train school leaders to do those things well? Right, because it's not like again, it's not like school leaders are sitting there, sit, sitting in their offices twiddling their thumbs, saying, "Man, I wish I had something to do today." Um, I've never <laughs> met a principal <laughs> at any school who said that. Um, so I think on one hand there is probably a desire for people to to not view the folks that work in central office as some sort of sort of dead weight that's just dragging down schools because I don't think that's true, and I don't think principals would say that either. There are places central office could get better. That is true in any system, period, full stop. Um, but I definitely think to sort of continue to frame folks that work down there as just as just useless overhead is really, I think it's hurtful. I think it's harmful um, because what is actually true is that you need a school system, right? Um, it's not just a system of loosely, you know, sort of loosely affiliated school entities spread across the city. Um, and so I think there are places and spaces where folks need to work differently, folks need to work together, uh, maybe you need new folks, but I don't think it makes a lot of sense to continue to hold this us versus the mentality because I think that only leads to, that, that does not lead to good decision making. That leads to um, all kinds of other nonsense. I'm wondering, you know, does the executive cabinet, the superintendent usually has a work plan, is my understanding, right? The board approves a work plan. Uh, I, th I can imagine all sorts of good reasons why a superintendent would want a work plan and why a board would want a superintendent to have that work plan. Does the executive cabinet have a work plan? Or is it the same plan? Is it kind of divided up? Yeah, if I recall correctly, the superintendent's work plan um, also provides framing for the executive cabinet. So, um, there are various goals and stuff in the superintendent's work plan that get assigned. They're, they're sort of members of the executive cabinet, so they have a role to play either individually or collectively within each of those goals. Is, is any, as far as you know, is any part of that work plan kind of like a, a, a learning agenda, like where the team is tasked with like finding excellence or solutions wherever it may lie, and then kind of bringing that learning back to cabinet? Um, yes, people do. The thing I appreciate about all these folks is they are um, they are uniformly really, really smart and well-informed people um, who know quite a bit about what's working and what's not working in public education, both in Oakland and outside of Oakland. Um, I think what's interesting to think about is how do you um, how do you take what you know, or at least what you think you could work better. And then what are the things that get in your way from doing those things? Um, what are those things? What have uh, you seen? Usually it's, again, it usually comes back to some combination of we don't have the money, which can be like we flat out don't have the money, or we do have the money, but it's tied up in this other thing that some people like, and we're kind of stuck because we got to go have a fight with them to get them to, because we're not going to do that in order to do this, right? Um, that's usually the biggest one. Um, and this is deciding, man, do I feel like having this fight today? Um, and some 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 seasons you feel like it, and some seasons you're like, I cannot you, do this again. If you if you if you can't, that's fine. But I mean, if I'm curious to know if there's an example of one such scenario that you could actually give specifically where cabinet felt like they couldn't even start the conversation because it just so they didn't they kind of negotiated with themselves so to speak they didn't yeah. even kind of yeah. So you guys remember this is not this is not a, this is not a cabinet level discussion. This isn't like a, I want to do a but I can't do it because of B, and I don't want to do a B. That's actually not 
what happens there. Usually that conversation takes place at the leader. It takes place at the deputy superintendent or something like that where someone just decides, I'm just not going to fight this this way. I can't. Like, I just physically cannot have another one. Um, which, again, that that actually makes sense, right? If you feel like you were fighting on all fronts all the time, sometimes you just get tired. You just can't do it anymore. Um, it doesn't mean you're going to quit your job. You like your job. You do your job well. It just means I cannot have this fight with this person right now. I might have to delay it. Maybe I'll do it later. Um, so I think so. I think those are very real struggles. Um, and sometimes you, sometimes superintendent says, I want this. And they're like, okay. And they go and do it, right? That is welcome, welcome to bureaucracies. Yeah. All right. Well, um, Brian, this has been an amazing conversation. We want to move into um, the, the, the last segment here. Okay. We have a bit. We're doing a bit. I mean, if it, 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 it's a bit of a bit. A bit? Um, oh, boy. Um, so we, we, we wanted to ask you five questions. Okay. Um, and we may have touched upon some of these. These are meant to really be more rapid fire. So don't. You know, there's no pressure to go, go deep, though you're more than welcome to. Obviously, you can, you can pass on anything, and we can come back to them. Um, so we talked a little bit earlier about um, radical education ideas. Greg, Greg put that out there. Um, I know you shared your answer. You know, just uh, if there's anything that's come up between now and then, you know, w what would you consider to be your most radical education idea, or something that um, scares you to even contemplate saying to the education community in Oakland? <laughs> um, yeah, I. Um, Well, I mean, I don't think I have a radical education idea for mm -hmm. Oakland. I mm -hmm. think I, other than to say, I think we are, we are not nearly as badass as we like to think we are mm -hmm. in Oakland. Um, I think we, we are pretty clear. Um, and if someone tells you they're not clear, it's simply because they haven't been paying attention in my book. My book. Um, about the fact that our public systems are failing um, literally every day, thousands of kids that look like me. Mm -hmm. um, and that failure is by design, and we are um, too cowardly to interrupt that um, by making the hard choices. And I think part of that cowardice is because the kids who are being failed look like me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I, I've always said if white kids did as poorly in public schools as African-American Latino kids did, um, folks would be in the streets. Um, and and I, I have the same conversation all the time with people and um, if I show them a chart of achievement for black kids in math, it's 90% fail, um, I will get a litany of reasons why that's okay, why it's perfectly acceptable for those kids to be failing that way. The poor, you know, it's it's only public education where we tell parents who we know are working the double swing at Walmart. You know, it would be great if you want your child to read, if you could just find two more hours a day to read with them at home. And I, I, I what I often wonder um, is for those parents, I'm sort of hoping someone just says, you know, I, my kid shows up to school every day, fed, loved, well moisturized. Um, <laughs> um, I drop them off to your building at 7 o'clock in the morning, a building full of people who educate children all day. And what you're telling me is that my kid can't read and it's not my fault. 
Um, I think there's something foul about that. And I think that is the attitude of much of the education community in Oakland. Mm -hmm. And I think until we have that conversation and we have that conversation authentically and deeply, um, and we have that conversation fearlessly, um, and we go there in that conversation and we talk about race and we talk about class and we talk about gender, uh, we talk about power, um, then we're gonna continue just to simply tread water at best. Um, and so kids like mine will be fine. Kids like y'all's will be fine. Um, but a whole bunch of kids won't be fine. Yeah. And we know that. Um, and the question is, you know, how comfortable, the question is, it seems to me that we have grown really comfortable with inequality. Um, and we've got to either decide we're not cool with that anymore or quit talking yeah. and just move on. Question two. It's kind of a couple questions all in one. <laughs> Who do you consider to be the most intelligent or influential or clear, reasoned? Who's that voice in education today? Why do you think that about them? And what do you think that voice still gets wrong? Huh. Most clear, reasoned voice in education today? You can say Randy if you think it's Randy. <laughs> It, it also it certainly doesn't have to be necessarily constrained right. to Oakland. So this yeah. could be your 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 field is global if you if you so desire. Um, well, I I really appreciate um, the actually it's kind of two different people. So um, I really appreciate Lashawn Chapman in the National Equity Project. Um, because never I find myself feeling beyond frustrated <laughs> uh, at some nonsense that has occurred this hour. Uh, um, then I know if I pick up the phone, just call LaShawn, um, we can have an honest, pretty real conversation about what's happening. Um, and both her and really her whole team over there, their ability to sort of step back and think systemically about problems and think systemically about how systems are designed to get the results they produce and then articulate that um, is super right on for me. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really been, it's help, helps me clarify my own thinking a lot. Um, um, Can I dare you to say what LaShawn, LaShawn gets wrong? Gets wrong. Yeah. Um, sometimes, I mean, I, sometimes I think, um, sometimes I think they can be overly optimistic about what people can do. Um, I, I don't, you know, I think their job is to be optimistic about, about what people can do. Um, but there are times I think, no, that they don't want to do that. Um, and it's hard to deal, it's hard to imagine a scenario where people don't want to do what they're supposed to do in order to help black kids learn and you're an educator. Mm -hmm. um, that's a, that's a, man, that's a hard spot. Um, and it's a terrifying place. Because um, you want to believe that you thought you were past that, mm -hmm. right? It's 2017. <laughs> right, right. We just had um, a black president, right? People want to believe that. And then, and I want to believe that too, but the evidence does not support that <laughs> conclusion. No. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think the other side, the other person, the person I really appreciate is actually Hayson Thomas over at Education for Change. Mm -hmm. um, um, and she is someone who, again, um, has been in Oakland education for such a long time. And I don't always agree with her. Um, um, but what I appreciate is 
her understanding of the communities that she serves um, and her commitment to those communities um, in spite of a great many things, right? And they are not, EFC is not perfect. They do weird and wacky things too. Like any, like any bureaucracy. Hazen would probably bristle that I called her bureaucracy. <laughs> Sorry, Hazen. Um, hopefully she'll get her turn. Hopefully she'll get her turn. She'll be like that Brian Stanley. Um, but I think it's, I, I do think it's, um, I do find that the, that the work that she does and the team that she leads over there, that they get a lot of stuff right. And I find that, you know, if there are places where I can think like, huh, Maybe actually there's something that we can learn there that could work better. I think that's pretty cool. Great. Um, if you were a superintendent in OUSD, what would be the first thing you would do and why? Huh. First thing I would do, huh? Um, well, I think probably the first thing, first few things I would do would really focus on trying to make sure that um, I actually went back up I changed my mind there I think probably the first thing I would do would be to spend a bunch of time listening um, and would be to spend a ton of time out at schools talking to families talking to school leaders talking to classroom teachers um, trying to cut through the rhetoric and get to the reality of what's happening in schools every day. Um, trying to um, just be just be empathetically in a space. My wife for uh, a while did missions. Um, she was part of part of a program where they took um, American college kids to missions, and she was in Kenya. And what she always talked about that stuck with me was the notion of. Um, your entrance posture into a community, that if you enter humbly um, and you are ready to be humbled, um, then you are more likely to be successful. And she would tell me sort of all times the kids that came in like, you know, I'm an American from UCLA and would show up at the Kabari slums and just get their soul crushed by just what they saw mm-hmm. um, and did not know how to recover from that. Yeah. Um, and so um, I think similarly, Wanting to enter communities humbly and wanting to enter communities listening, wanting to, wanting to enter communities learning, um, which I know is a counter to things in, in OUSD right now. Where everyone's like, come in and do all this hard stuff. But I also just generally believe that the superintendent is not remotely by any stretch of the imagination the most important person in Oakland Public Schools. Um, that, that, that it is, um, what is true is that that honor falls to principals and the teachers. Um, to students themselves who are actually agents of their own change in many cases, um, to a broad array of community assets that sort of circle around kids. And so your job as superintendent isn't to sort of marshal the might of OUSD. It really is to be a part of that process, to both facilitate it, to both inspire people to be to be their better selves, um, to make hard decisions when hard decisions need to be made, but also to build a team and a culture that enables and facilitates decision making across the system. I want everyone to make great decisions in OUSD, not just the superintendent. Um, and so I would, that would all start from a base of let's go learn about what's happening every day in our schools and do that humbly and with joy and enthusiasm. Great. Number four. 
what or who inspires you in Oakland to continue working in education? What or who inspires me in Oakland to continue working in education? Hmm. Can't say Greg, huh? Uh, you may <laughs> you, definitely you say Greg. <laughs> I mean, you can. Uh, <laughs> the audience clicks off. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think probably my own kids. Um, I've got a nine-year-old and a six-and-a-half-year-old. Uh, two boys um, and I think what I'm interested for them is figuring out how do I ensure that um, Oakland is a community that is thriving when they have kids of their own and I am long gone um, I don't plan for that, that to sort of be a simultaneous event thank you very much but um, but it does, like, I want my kids to grow up in Oakland. Um, I want my kids to raise their kids in Oakland. Um, and to do that, Oakland's got to be, Oakland's still got to be here, right? And it's Oakland has to be here. Can't be, can't become, you know, the kids that grew up in San Francisco, I go to San Francisco now, I don't recognize the place. Um, that's not knocking people that live in San Francisco. It's just not San Francisco for a black kid growing up in the 80s anymore. Um, and I think there's some part of San Francisco that's lost. And I don't. I, you know, I'm not one of these people who sort of hold this deep nostalgia for that what it, what is now should always be, but I do think there's something about the the character of a place that you should want to preserve, right? And so part of that means ensuring that folks have the education they need in order to build thriving lives where they're able to fully participate in the world. Um, and so I think I find a lot of inspiration from my kids. Um, it's also true that my kids don't really care when I have a bad day. Um, um, I think when we got the first Salesforce grant, I said, guys, we, I just got like three, like, like, like two and a half million bucks for Oakland schools. And my oldest said, huh, well, how much of that do we get, Dad? <laughs> and I was like, well, we don't really get Nine. any. And he was like, oh, hmm. okay, well, can you help me with my car? <laughs> so um, they, they bring humor and levity and uh, sometimes a little frustration into my day. Um, but they also inspire me quite a bit. All right. All right, so last, uh, last question. So through your work at the Ed Fund, mm -hmm. what, what do you get to see or experience that you wish everyone else in Oakland could see or experience? So this year we started doing uh, mini grants through a fund we created called the A to Z Fund, um, which is really designed to provide discretionary dollars to schools. Um, and we... we designed the A to Z fund to really prioritize the schools that have the highest, that serve the most special, um, um, special sorry, that serve the most um, low income English language learners and foster youth. So prioritizing those schools first. So this year we we did our first round of mini grants ever. We had some, we had some, raised some individual money and got some um, uh, phil uh, philanthropic dollars to do this. And there is um, uh, Roses and Concrete was one of the schools, and they have a, now have a Dungeons and Dragons club, and they had been imagining playing Dungeons and Dragons um, for this entire school year, and they wrote a grant to us, and we said, of course. And the teacher who's doing it said, I want to teach you kids for math and probability, because there's actually an enormous amount of math in Dungeons and Dragons that I'd forgotten about <laughs> as an '80s kid, uh, but it became you see those little like twelve-sided dice. You're like, oh god, again. Um, and that is amazing, right? It's, ama I mean, it's amazing. 
um, for those young people, for those students to have that opportunity to sort of bring play into school in a really different way. Um, you know, those kids will go on and do whatever they do. But this they'll remember. Um, we had another case where we supported the manhood, the African-American Male Achievement Program has manhood development classes, and I think it was the manhood development class in one of the schools in East Oakland, um, where those, those, those young kings went to uh, a ropes course up at Berkeley. They had never been to, to that ropes course, to that park, um, and they did have the ropes course experience, which for them really crystallized the, what they have been learning all year of, how do I support my brother? Um, you're physically supporting your brother as he's as he's shimming up some redwood tree in the middle of Tilden, um, and they're going to jump off, and you're going to catch him. Um, and there was something again for those young men where that experience just became really crystallized in that moment. Um, which you know the people that know that we do that will be the folks who see the pictures, um, and the and the teacher in the school. And we don't one of the things we we we. We talk a lot about the stuff that we do, um, but we don't talk about all of it. Um, uh, communications people are horrified <laughs> sometimes how much we under talk about what we do because we often want to push the schools and the students and the teachers that do amazing work. We want to keep them at the center of the story because one of the challenges in Oakland is it becomes about all these other things. It's easy to lose sight of that that actually should be at the heart of what we do. This is the last thing we did recently, which did get some good press, because um, we partnered with uh, Leslie West, um, um, who is the, the, the spouse of David West, who's a Golden State Warriors player, to give out 300 prom dresses. Um, nobody will know the back end work it took to make that happen. I will spare you the stories. Um, but what, what, had, what has struck me about that was when I talked to my staff about what, sort of what their experience was, is they were flabbergasted at just the both incredible gratitude but also the joy on these young women as they got the dress they needed to go to prom and look fabulous and feel great. Um, and that kind of work, and we can only do that because people from Oakland say, oh, I'm totally coming volunteer. Let me help out. How can I help you do this? And so I think the thing people often miss about Oakland um, is the fact that there is such a generous community spirit here that we've never had an event where we needed people to come out to help us figure out something and where people didn't come out to help us figure out something. Um, whether it's partnering with Lyft last year to deliver 4,000 backpacks to 90 schools in a couple of hours, um, whether it's the read-in events where we get hundreds of people from across the community to go out and read books by and about Latinos and African Americans and Asian Americans, um, it's it's a, it's a it's a pretty remarkable community that it can be easy to forget and lose that in spite of all the other stuff in in the area, um, but that is often probably the most humbling thing I see in Oakland all the time. Awesome. Awesome. Um, um, I think we're going to leave it there. So thank you, Dr. Brian Stanley, for uh, being our guest here. I'm glad. Proud to be guest number one. Do I, do I get like a pin or something? You can have a, a pen? Like a, like, like a lapel pen or like a yeah, we'll, we'll metal or something? You design it. We'll get it. <laughs> Good job. And we'll, we'll have to have you back, too. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot about fundraising that we, we didn't, yeah, we didn't have. We have, we have at least another 50 questions for you. You can tell your comms people that, uh, you know, that you did some good comms here, hopefully. I hope so. They, 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 they yell at me all the time if I don't, if I don't do good comms here. Okay. All right. Well, Brian, thank you again so, so much for taking the time to, to chat with us. You're welcome. We'll, I think we'll be, I think we'll be back, in, back a in a second and we'll, and wrap, we'll up wrap up episode one. Episode one. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. All right.
Okay, well, thanks once more to Dr. Brian Stanley for taking the time to sit down and chat with Greg and me. Um, if you'd like to connect with Brian or the Ed Fund, uh, here's the information you need, and we'll, of course, include this uh, on our website in the show notes. Uh, the Oakland uh, Education Fund is oaklandedfund.org. Uh, on Twitter, you can find Brian at Dr. No period. Brian Stanley, and the Ed Fund on Twitter is at Oakland Ed Fund. So you can definitely also find us on the web. We are thegrproject.com. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of stuff up on the website. Uh, you can learn a little bit more about Randy and myself, uh, but we'll also have notes about each episode. And so for this episode, we'll we'll definitely include links to a few of the things Brian mentioned, such as OUSDdata.org, as well as a little bit more about both LaShawn and Haysin, their organizations, and how you can learn more about more information about what they're all up to as well. Yeah, and on, uh, on our website as well, you can find our um, social media accounts. Um, but real quick, they are on Twitter, at G&RProject. That's all spelled out, so A-N-D. Uh, on Facebook, we're at uh, facebook.com slash the GR project. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've got, uh, we've got our digital tip jar out at uh, Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the GR project. Yeah. And so please, you know, talk back at us through the website. Uh, you can even email us, thegrproject at gmail.com. We'll also have our individual Twitter information up on the website, which again is thegrproject.com. We'd love to know what your questions are for us, uh, guests you want us to interview, more questions you have for Brian. Use whatever avenue you want. We'll be paying attention to them all as best we can. And thanks so much for listening. And congratulations, Randy, again on getting episode one out the door. Congratulations to you, Greg. All right. We will see you next time on the GR Project. <laughs>